Welcome to another sermon podcast from All Souls Anglican Church, Cherry Hill, New Jersey. Thanks for joining us as we study God's Word together. These weekly sermons are part of the teaching ministry of our church. Have your Bible ready as we begin this week's sermon. And stay tuned when we finish at the end to find out more about us. Now this is the fifth and final sermon in our sermon series for Advent and for Christmas Eve. It's a series where we've examined the various scripture texts of Handel's Messiah, part one, the prophecies of the Messiah's birth. Now although Handel wrote the music, Charles Jennings, a committed Christian, was the lyricist. And Jennings underlined in all his part one choices how the birth of Jesus is the most significant birth in human history. So tonight, I want to summarize what we've learned in the three texts of Scripture that we've heard read to us, two of which close part one of the Messiah. All three focus on a child or on children. Now, the first child is Isaiah chapter 9. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Now, what we've learned in our study this month is how all of Isaiah's pronouncements were set in an era of deep political and economic crisis. The kingdom of Judah, its royal dynasty, the capital Jerusalem, and its great temple was on a literal knife's edge. A resurgent Assyrian empire was on the march south towards them. Former allied kingdoms were now enemies, and refugees had flooded into the city. There was panic and fear within its walls. And life for the man and woman in the street was never going to be the same again. All the certainties and the many years they had spent on the land in Israel and in Judah had come suddenly and quickly to an end. Now that was 2,750 years ago. We had asked them, what was wrong with the world, I'm sure they would be able to tell us and write up a list of the things that weren't exactly right as they expected it. And I think that if we too today thought for some minutes, we also would be able to write a list of things that are wrong with this world. Deep down, all human beings have this sense that the world isn't what it should be. You tell time passing when you look in the mirror at the aged person looking back at you. Our self-confidence vanishes when the doctor tells us that the test's results weren't what he expected. You're called in, told to clear your desk. A guy runs a stop sign and your car is in an accident. Unexpected tragedies of our lives 
exposes to us what we all know in our heart of hearts. When we think about our future, we must confess that life indeed looks quite uncertain. The only certainty we know is that life will end. It's too short. Life shouldn't be this way. Well, God's word agrees with you. Almost from its first pages, you will read how the items on our list of what is wrong with the world are there as well. All because we wanted to go our own way and not God's way. Yet God created us, gave us a reason for living, to enjoy him and to glorify him forever in peace under his protection, but we said no. And it's all gone wrong ever since, rooted in how our hearts say no to God. There's a darkness hanging over the earth, but it's a darkness that begins within us all. But God, thankfully, did not leave us that way. That's why Isaiah writes just before he talks of this child that the people who have walked in darkness have seen a great light, and those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them has light shone. Now, why are these people rejoicing? Isaiah gives three simple reasons. The light sets us free from bondage and oppression. The light ends all conflict among us. And the light is the longed, hoped-for deliverer. This truth is so vivid to Isaiah that he writes as if it's already come, even though from his point of view, it's still 750 years in the future. It's not something vague, but something to happen in history, on this earth, at a definite time, and in a definite place. The birth of this one child is the gift of God. He is a child, but he is also the Son of God. This tells us he's not simply a contemporary of Isaiah because all kings of David's line were adopted of God. They are never called son of God. But here we have the son of God, Emmanuel, who is also the legitimate heir of David's throne. So who is this child? The names give us a clue. Wonderful. Counselor. Mighty God. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Wonder, and in Handel's text there is a comma there, as it's found in the original Hebrew, it describes our first encounter with this servant of the Lord. God himself comes near to us as we hear the names of this child that follow. All the rest fall under this wonder, this sense of awe and gratitude that we have in confronting him. Counselor, 
The spirit of wisdom rests upon him fully. He is unique. He needs no human advisor or counselor, for he himself is counselor. The way in which he will make decisions will remind us of the wisdom and mercy of God, because he himself is of the same nature. Mighty God. This child will have God's true might about him, power so great that he, only he, can absorb all the evil which can be hurled at him until there is none left to throw. Everlasting Father. Next, it's the quality of the relationship he has with his people. He will be like them as a father. Prince of Peace. Restoring peace to the world, he reigns in peace. He's the embodiment of peace. If you and I would have peace, it is to him that we must go. Who is this child? It is the Lord Jesus, the servant of the Lord. Now, how can I assert that this child is the Lord Jesus, the true son of David? What makes him the child that fulfills Isaiah's description? Our second reading from Galatians 4 gives us some of the answer. In the same way also, we, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. What does all that mean? When the fullness of time had come, God did two things. He sent his son to redeem and to adopt, not just rescue us, but to make slaves into sons and daughters. Now, we're not told here how, but if you read the first part of this letter to the Galatians, you'll find out that the how is by the death of Jesus, and that this death was a curse-bearing death. The power absorbed and endured all the evil that could be hurled against it until there was none left. He perfectly fulfilled the righteousness the law requires. He is the one who satisfies the claim of God's perfect justice by living a life obedient to God's word and law. If he were not a man, he could not take our place. If he were not God, he could not have endured the punishment we deserved or to make us sons and daughters of God. God sent his spirit to secure our sonship and to assure us of it by his spirit that those who are sons and daughters have an experience of it. 
There's a qualitative difference in the way a believer will pray, adopted as son or daughter of God, and an unbeliever will pray. The unbeliever will say, oh God. The trusting son or daughter prays, oh Father. Those who reject him never do, because they indeed are still slaves not sons and daughters. And so the Lord Jesus Christ is the wonderful counselor, almighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace to his adopted sons and daughters. So we have Isaiah's declaration on one side. We have Jesus fulfilling it on the other. So what about us? We stand in between, don't we? Well, the last group explains that for us in Matthew 11, this last group of children. Come unto me, all ye that labor. Come unto him that are heavy laden, and he will give you rest. Take his yoke upon you, and learn of him, for he is meek and lowly of heart, and ye shall find rest for your souls. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. The key to the how about us is the way Jesus describes two groups of children. His first bunch are sore losers. Jesus likens the generation in front of him this way We played the flute and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you do not mourn. In other words, the children are teasing the sore losers. You wanted it your way. You always want to win. You would rather take your ball and go home than play fairly. We played the flute, you wouldn't dance. We sang a dirge, you wouldn't mourn. Sore loser. The second bunch of children accept what they're told and trust. We know this because this is how Jesus prays. What were children like in Jesus' day? They had no status at all. They came with empty hands and trusted what they were told. This is how our Savior prayed. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Now consider that claim very closely. First, Jesus maintains people cannot grasp a believing, saving understanding of God by their own efforts. They cannot discern who Jesus is, what the kingdom of God is, unless God shows them. He conceals these things 
from those who are wise in their own conceit and reveals them to those who come with a simple teachableness. Whenever anyone comes to faith, there has been a divine disclosure to that person. Next, Jesus claims to be the full-powered representative of the Father, just as Isaiah predicted. He comes from the Father's side, equipped with the Father's power, and displaying the compassion of the Father's heart. He fully represents God and comes with God's own claim on human hearts. Only the Father fully understands Jesus. Now, theologians have spent centuries trying to understand what that means between divine and human natures in our Savior. But with the limit discernment of the human mind and heart, it can't be done. It, it takes God to know God. Only the Father knows the Son. Only the Son knows the Father. That's the claim. Now, great people have discovered and taught many true and noble things about God. When the holy man, Mahatma Gandhi, was dying, one of his relatives came to him and asked, Babu, you have been looking for God all your life. Have you found him yet? No, he said, I'm still looking. Consider that alongside what Jesus has just said. He does not know something about God. He does not even know everything about God. Rather, he knows God absolutely, utterly. And last, because Jesus shares the Father's nature as well as ours, he and he alone can reveal the Father. He can show us because he knows. He can introduce us because he belongs. He is the Son. This is the most astonishing claim that's ever been heard on human lips, that the way to know the Father is through Jesus. That's why he said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. If you want to get through to God, come to Jesus. That is the claim he makes. This sheer exclusivity of it drives people to accept or reject question always is, which will it be for us? Jesus turns to those who've been listening to him and says those simple, wonderful world. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Come to me.
Will we come to him this Christmas tide? Amen. Thank you for listening. You can find out more about us by going to our website, allsoulsnj.org. There, you can support our mission by making a one-time donation or starting a podcast member subscription by clicking the Support the Show link under the Contact Us tab. You can also support us in prayer by clicking the Email Newsletter tab at the top. All Souls Anglican Church. Simple Church. Ancient Truth. Real People. New Life.